Why don't you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, as today we enter the conclusion to Christ's Sermon on the Mount. This is a lengthy conclusion, so we're not going to finish it today, but it's like when you're on a plane, the pilot signals it's time for that final descent. It's time to prepare for landing with this sermon. Now, speaking of flying, I would imagine that the hardest part of flying from the pilot's perspective has to be the landing. That's when so many things can go wrong. You can't rely on autopilot. You want a smooth landing. You don't want a crash landing, and it's all up to you. In a similar manner, I would say the hardest part of preaching is the landing. That is the conclusion. You'll hear that sentiment echoed by many pastors. It's often challenging to land the plane. You want to drive home the heart of the message in a succinct yet compelling way. But it's not always easy. No one wants that long, drawn-out conclusion where the preacher says he's wrapping up, but he still talks for 30 more minutes. But you also don't want to crash abrupt landing either. That's something you can get away with in teaching, but not in preaching. Teaching is all about instruction. It's aimed at the mind to fill people with just truth, data, knowledge, facts. Preaching is different, though. Biblical preaching should include instruction, because it rests on a foundation of truth, namely the scriptures. But preaching is not ultimately aimed at the mind, but the heart or the will. Preaching is meant to impact the will, changing how, what people think or how they live, all in accordance with God's word. And accordingly, biblical preaching is inherently confrontational. It involves what 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort. That's where the meaning of God's word is translated into an appeal to the will. And the conclusion of a sermon is usually, usually the time to drive all that home. So when the dots must be clearly connected with between what the word means and now how we ought to live. And Jesus, being the prince of preachers, knows this. And that's precisely what he's going to do in his conclusion to, I'd say, the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. We've been studying this sermon for months now, taking our time to go through all the details. Now we are preparing to land as we enter the conclusion. And this is where Jesus demands a response to all that he has said. He has preached this whole sermon. It's filled with rich truth. We have studied it. But don't let that you, uh, give you the impression that it's meant to be merely studied. The sermon is not meant to be merely studied, but obeyed. Jesus did not preach for your admiration or applause. He's not waiting for you to throw roses at his feet. He did not preach to be liked. He preached to be obeyed and followed. Because this preacher stands alone as the Lord. And the Sermon on the Mount was given not so that you might merely hear his words, but that you might do his words. That's how he concludes at the very end, though not our text for today, down verses 24 through 27, the, the final landing. What's the whole point? Who is the fool? Someone who hears these words of mine, but does not do them. But the wise man is the one who hears these words of mine, verse 24, and then acts on them. It's not enough to be a hearer or an admirer of this sermon. You must be a doer. Jesus will make this point throughout the conclusion as he calls people listening not to be bystanders or onlookers or pretenders, but disciples, right? He says, follow me. This is very apparent in our text for today, which begins our descent into landing. Here, Jesus begins to present a series of choices that must be made. 
What has this sermon been all about? It's been about God's kingdom and those who will enter into it. We've been given a picture of kingdom living, which is applicable to us even now as as we are made citizens of that kingdom by faith. But the way of this kingdom, it is not like the way of the world. It's not even like the way of the religious leaders of Israel. God's kingdom is another way, Christ's way. In the sermon, he leads the way. Several times we've witnessed this contrast Jesus makes between his way and the way of the world, specifically the way of the religious leaders of Israel. Now, in his conclusion, he's going to drive that point home, that contrast home by drawing just like the sharpest, darkest line in the sand possible. Makes it crystal clear that in response to this sermon, you now have just two choices. You're either on the way of Christ, headed to his kingdom, or you're not. There's no third path. There's no third option. There's no other way to heaven. Let me give you a quick preview of this conclusion and its final contrast, starting in verse 13 to the end. Verse 13, you have two ways, two gates, two crowds, two destinations. Then verse 17, two trees, two fruit, two types of professing believers. Then down to verse 24, two builders, two foundations, two houses, and two outcomes. And all these contrasts present you with a single choice. Will you follow Jesus into life or not? We begin today with our text, verses 12 through 14. This is just the beginning of the conclusion, but already it's so clear and powerful. Let's read that. Matthew 7, 12 through 14. He says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, our text for today begins with verse 12. Verse 12 really stands alone as the conclusion to his main teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And honestly, we just didn't have time to include it in last week's sermon. So we're going to address it here to begin with. But with the theme of conclusions, it's quite fitting because verse 12 really sits alone as the capstone to all of the the body of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It's often called the golden rule, and it really is the perfect summary to all he's taught. Then we'll go through verses 13, 14. That begins the conclusion to this sermon. And we'll see the first of a series of choices Jesus presents us with as we prepare for landing. So this might feel a little like two sermons in one, but in two different ways, we get to see how this sermon is coming to an end. So what we need to do. So we'll begin with verse 12. You might call this the conclusion to Christ's teaching. The conclusion to Christ's teaching, that the body of the sermon. It comes to a head here in verse 12. In everything, he says, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, when concluding a sermon, another one of your objectives often is to summarize your main point. And he does that here perfectly with this verse. This brings us to, I'd say, probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It is often known as the golden rule, although it's never called that in the Bible. 
tradition traces that title back to the third century where the Roman emperor Severus Alexander is said to have had this verse inscribed on his wall in gold. It's a fitting title, though, because this verse gives us the the highest expectation for how we are to treat one another. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. This is a present active command, meaning it's ongoing. These are standing orders for us in the church for how we are to treat other people. Now, there are some who seek to downplay the golden rule coming from Jesus as if it's, it's nothing special. It's nothing new. That's because there are other versions of this golden rule from other religions that predate Jesus. And it is true that there are similar sayings that predated Jesus. There's a big difference, though. You can listen. Confucius said, for example, do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Hinduism states, do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. And the famous Rabbi Hillel was once challenged to summarize all the law while standing on one foot. And so he said this, quote, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is only commentary, end quote. These things are all very similar, but you may have noticed one key difference between what what Christ says here. That all these other versions are stated negatively. They're all phrases what not to do. Don't harm others. Don't do bad things to others. Don't inflict pain on others. Don't do anything to others you wouldn't want done to you. You can see how these rules ultimately appeal to a a self-interest. Just don't harm others because you don't want to suffer harm. There is a a selfish or self-centered motivation behind how you're treating others. But you see, the way Jesus phrases his rule, it really does immediately stand out and stand alone because he phrases this in the positive and he goes way beyond the negative. Positively, he says, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. This is not merely about just refraining from harming others, but actively, positively seeking their good, serving their best interests, going out of your way. This is a vastly higher standard. Christ's rule, uh, rule here requires true selflessness and self-sacrifice to obey. It is others-focused, not self-focused. You've got to lay down self-interest to do this, to pick up this concern for others, to walk in this way. And this is why all the other versions have been termed by some as the silver rule, because they're good, but they're still ultimately selfish. Christ's version stands alone as the golden rule because it is truly about just serving the best interests of others. There's nothing in it for you. This is the way of Jesus. It's the way he took all the way to the cross, the way in which we are to follow. Just like it says, one of my favorite verses, Philippians 2, 3 through 5. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. It says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And that says in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the way in which he leads us. Now, in a sense, what Jesus says here is nothing new. Not because he's copying sayings from other religions, but... How about the fact that he's just, he's just summarizing the essence of the Old Testament? 
He says in verse 12, this golden rule, he says, this is the law and the prophets. It's a common way they referred to the entire Old Testament back then. In the Old Testament, God was revealing his nature, his character to his people. And in so doing, he was revealing how they ought to live as people. They must live in conformity with his character. So you have verses like Leviticus 19.2, where he tells the people, you are to be holy as your heavenly father is holy. What does that holiness look like? I just read all the laws of the Old Testament. It, it just looks like loving God with all your heart, loving your neighbors yourself. It looks like just treating other people the way you would want them to treat you. The golden rule cuts through all the technicalities of the law. It provides just ample guidance for every what if. You want to see a perfect example of this rule carried out. You don't have to turn there, but you can think of the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10. There's a man traveling on a road. Robbers fell on him. They beat him, stripped him, left him for dead by the side of the road. It's been said that those robbers were operating off the iron rule, which states that might makes right. He who has the biggest stick makes the rules. A little bit later, though, a, a priest and then a Levite travel that road. They pass by him. They see him beaten, left for dead on the side of the road. And they're operating off that silver rule. Don't inflict pain. Don't harm others because you don't want to be harmed. And so they don't condone his beating. They're not going to contribute to his suffering, but they're also not going to help him. They just pass right on by. But then comes this Samaritan, one whom the Jews detested. And it says in verse 33, he had compassion for the man because he was operating off the golden rule. Thinking like, what if that were you? What if you were the one who was beaten, stripped, left for dead by the side of a road and someone walked by you? What would you want them to do for you in that moment? You know, just like the basics, keep you from dying, you know, just take you to a hospital. And that's what the Samaritan does. He actually goes way above and beyond. He bandages his wounds, brings him to an inn, pays for all of his expenses until he's restored to full health. There's absolutely nothing in this for the Samaritan. He received nothing. His actions were more than selfless. They're sacrificial. He suffered loss. He lost time and money in this equation. But this is how God loved us. This is how we are to love others. Self-will is baked into our fallen human natures. Our flesh, as you know, is just selfish to the core. This is why, though, natural man can live with the silver rule. And just, just don't go out of your way to harm others. Yeah, okay, we can do that. But really, a selflessness and a sacrifice are required to heed Christ's golden rule. This rule understands that we all seek our own good enough. And that's not inherently wrong, but wouldn't you say that most evil and injustice in the world results from people just hurting others to further their own interests? And from individuals to nations, this world is a mess because the, the default action of our flesh is to just look out for number one. We do not look out for others uh, like we do for ourselves. We, we care most about number one. And so how then can we in the church, how can we actually live out this golden rule? Because again, it's not meant to be merely admired. It does not suffice to engrave it on courthouse walls. The love it requires is really only going to come ultimately from the new birth. 
as a summary of God's law, you realize it merely presents us with another impossible standard. If you're calling this law a summary of the law and the prophets, this rule, even if this were the only command God ever gave to us, it's still an impossible standard. Can you keep this law? How often do you break the golden rule? Daily? But no, we know it's only by grace through faith in Christ that we are transformed. We're given new natures. We're unshackled from sin. We're chained to Christ and his righteousness. We come to receive the love of God in Christ. Seeing how he sent his son to to sacrifice selflessly to die on the cross for us. That's the only way we are moved to truly love others in the same way. Just like 1 John 3.16 tells us. It says, we know love by this. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We love because he first loved us. On top of this, we're given the Holy Spirit who bears the first fruit of love in our lives. This is the only way we're going to be moved to compassion like the Good Samaritan. To actually lay down self-interest and treat others the way we would want to be treated. This is how we must approach this golden rule as We seek to live it out daily by faith, not to justify ourselves like a law. Just this is how we we live out our faith. And that we must do. This still summarizes what God expects us to do. This verse captures the righteousness of God's kingdom. You can say it summarizes not just the law and the prophets. It summarizes the Sermon on the Mount. You look at verse 12. You see how it begins with therefore. There's not a lot in the context to argue that this is just the summary of his teaching on prayer from verses 7 through 11. It's really better to take this, therefore, as a conclusion to what he's been saying in the whole sermon, all the way back to chapter 5, verse 17. That's when he began the body of the sermon, talking about the law and the prophets. The mention of the law and the prophets there gives us very neat bookends to the body of this sermon. Jesus begins the sermon discussing how his teaching relates to the Old Testament. He ends in that same vein. The sermon has shown us the surpassing righteousness that will characterize all who enter the kingdom by faith. And the golden rule, just if you're going to boil it down to one verse, this is it. This is just that depiction of the kingdom righteousness we are to live out by faith. And so what's left now for us as citizens of this kingdom by faith is just to consider like, how are you doing? How are you living this out? Is this rule the one by which you order your life? This is so memorable because it's so flexible. It can fit any situation or circumstance of life, giving you guidance on what you ought to do, great or small. God's word is extensive, but it's not exhaustive in the sense it doesn't address every what if, I'm a believer. I'm following Christ. But what do I do when this happens? How do I respond to this situation? The Bible's not going to give us every answer of every specific scenario of life. But this one golden rule gives you clarity on every situation. All those occasions where there's no time to read a commentary. You don't have time to, to ask your pastor what to do. What should you do if you accidentally clip someone's car while parking? The Bible doesn't say but I'm sure if that were you, you would wish that other person would leave you a note. So just do that. What should you do if you see a lady walking in front of you in a 
A crisp $100 bill slips out of her purse, falls to the ground. There's nobody around. Nobody saw it. You pick it up. It's yours. But you know, if that were you, you would wish someone would return it to you. So do that. Or maybe with your spouse, you have it where you you take turns doing certain things, like big chores, putting the kids to bed, the dishes. And it's your spouse's turn. You've been doing all this stuff all week. It's their turn. But right now, you know they're not feeling well. If that were you, though it is your turn, you would want a little compassion, a little help. And so it requires sacrifice, but do that. The goal is not to go through a, a thousand applications. The whole point is that this one rule can cover unlimited applications in all your relationships, in all your circumstances. It's just what matters is is taking Christ's teaching to heart and living it out. That's the point of this sermon, to be followed. You've heard his words all the way throughout. You see it summarized now, just be a doer of this word. We all know how quickly we can revert to selfishness, operating off of self-interest, the flesh is strong, but I think this, this just stresses the importance for us to renew our minds with the truth each and every day. I'm going to safely wager that all of you came in here this morning, you already knew what the golden rule was. You know what it says. You did not learn that this morning, most likely. You probably have it in a sign in your house somewhere. But you and I still need what preaching, right? reproof, rebuke, exhortation. We need conviction and correction aimed at our will just to wake us up, to spur us on that we might live out our faith each day. So let us be reminded then and renewed in our resolve to follow Christ, to live out his kingdom righteousness. This golden way is his way. It's the way of all of his teaching. It's the conclusion to Christ's teaching. So let's follow him in in this way. All right, now we are going to switch gears You might call it a second point, the conclusion to Christ's sermon. First, verse 12, it it, it functions as the conclusion to his his teaching, the body of the sermon. Now we're going to go through verses 13, 14. A little different track, but this this is the conclusion to the sermon overall. This is the beginning to the conclusion of the sermon overall. At this point now, he's finished his main message. And the remaining verses, he's going to address the the so what. Like, now what? What should we do? How do we respond? His words demand a response. He's going to present that as a very clear choice between two ways. Two ways. Let's let's read about these two ways. Verses 13, 14. Read those again. again. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad. That leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it it's amazing how i think we go from one of christ's most popular sayings to what is probably one of his least popular sayings at least to the world just one verse apart these verses are patently offensive to the world especially our world it has rejected absolute truth it has embraced relativism it has embraced pluralism There's not one path to God or fulfillment. There are many. You know, our world would say all roads lead to God, right? When it comes to loving your neighbor, they will happily quote Jesus. When it comes to who's getting to heaven, they're not quoting Jesus anymore. 
They prefer the Dalai Lama, who said this, quote, People take different roads seeking fulfillment and happiness. Just because they're not on your road does not mean they've gotten lost, end quote. That's much better, much nicer. All religions, they're essentially the same. Everyone's going to end up in the same spot. doesn't really matter. But just know that you're not going to hear anything like that from Jesus ever. Jesus cannot be more exclusive in his claims. This is why biblical Christianity is mutually exclusive from every other world religion and worldview. Because you got Jesus, the leader, saying stuff like this. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father but through me. He kind of throws down the gauntlet. There's, there's no other way. And he teaches that everywhere, here especially. In our text, Jesus presents the exclusive way into the kingdom. And it's not complicated. You only have two choices. It's not like the supermarket. You just have choice A, choice B. There's only two choices. There's not a third option. You're either on the right way or you're not. He draws this line in the sand, and then he cuts off everyone on the other side. Everyone not on his side, they're going the wrong way. They're headed to hell. There are no exceptions, because there is no other way into his kingdom. His is the only way. You make claims like that today, that marks you an extremist, a fanatic, intolerant, I mean, I guess so be it. What can we say? We're not making this up. These aren't our words. They come from the Lord himself. But you realize they come as an appeal. They come as a warning and invitation. Because there's only one way to heaven, you better follow Christ now. Let's see the choices Jesus presents here. Flesh out in further detail. And more specifically, we'll see a choice of gates a choice of ways, a choice of crowds, a choice of destinations. Let's start with a a choice of gates. Verse 13, you've got a choice between these two gates. The gate to life is described as narrow and then small. The gate to destruction is, it is broad, it is wide. The term for gate here certainly evokes city gates. Back in the ancient world, major cities were walled for protection Only major way in and out was the city gates. They would be barricaded at night or in wartime. No one gets in, no one gets out. These main gates, they were wide to accommodate crowds and cargo. Trade routes, country roads, they terminated at these gates to these cities. Broad gates. But, you know, a lot of cities would also have a secret narrow gate, a side gate. Maybe like a tiny doorway size, somewhere hidden in the walls. Only known by the residents for use at travel at night or an emergency. It's like a one size fit, uh, one, one per person can fit through this, uh, or one person at a time can fit through such small gates. Jesus is using gates here clearly as a metaphor for entering the kingdom of heaven. His vocab is a dead giveaway for this. You see in verse 13, he says, enter, a command, enter. This is eis erkomai in the Greek. It's the same term he uses back in chapter 5, verse 20 for what? Entering the kingdom of heaven, he says. Down in verse uh, 31 of chapter 7, or uh, 21 rather, he'll use it for, again, entering the kingdom of heaven. Many times in Matthew, he talks about entering and his object is the kingdom of heaven. Very significant is Matthew 19 where he uses these two key phrases synonymously. One is entering the kingdom of heaven. 
And the other is entering into life. Here in our verse, he's talking about entering into this gate leading to life. There's little doubt he's talking about entering the kingdom of heaven. That's what this whole sermon has been about. What's also clear is that Jesus himself is the gate. He said in a similar metaphor, John 10 verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. It's only one right door. It's only one right gate into this kingdom. And you better make sure you're entering the right one. Jesus describes this right gate as a narrow one. And his, his imagery, the imagery he uses sheds light on what it takes to enter, which is to say what it takes to follow him. Let's reflect on that real quick here. First, we could say you must enter this gate alone. You must enter this gate alone. The, the broad gate is for the crowds. It's like an entrance to a stadium. It can swallow up masses in a moment. But this gate here is extremely narrow. Many have likened it today to a turnstile. I mean, it admits people one by one. It can fit everybody, just one by one. You must enter alone, which is to say, in the metaphor, by your own faith. That the faith of your parents can't save you. It doesn't matter if you're raised in a Christian home. That, that's not gaining your entrance into the kingdom. God has no grandchildren, only children by faith. And also the faith of your country or culture can't save you. This is the mistake the Jews made, thinking because they were descendants of Abraham, that was like a backstage pass to the kingdom. But no, everyone will enter or be rejected. They will stand or fall by their own individual faith. Secondly, you must enter this gate empty-handed. It's, just, it's too narrow. These turnstiles are too constricting. You can't bring all this luggage. You can't bring any baggage with you. You have to leave it all behind. This would include most of all the baggage of sin. Repentance is required to enter the narrow gate. You must forsake your sin. It's not to say that as a disciple, you'll never sin again. But we're talking about that rebel's heart. It can't come with you through the gate. It's too big. You have to forsake the other way, the way of sin. Repent. As Jesus and John preached, repent for the kingdom's at hand. Third, you must enter this gate at great cost. It's, it's not easy to enter. It's, it's like you have to squeeze through with all your effort. Jesus taught this same truth on another occasion. And he said this. This is Luke 13, verse 24. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Word for strive uses there is agonizomai, from which we get the word agonize. It's used to depict how a runner is just striving to win the race. This is a do-whatever-it-takes mentality. You find this narrow gate, you find the pearl of great price. You'll sell everything you have to acquire it if you have to. Salvation is a free gift, but it, at the same time, it costs you everything to enter. What did Jesus himself say about the cost to enter? We'll learn later, Matthew 10, 37, 38, where he says this. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy 
of me. Do you realize that your decision to follow Christ may cost you every relationship you have in life? Your friends, your family, your job, your health, your life. Just this past week, literally this past week, read a story about a man from Uganda. He was a Muslim who converted to Christianity. And fellow Muslims found out what happened, so they tracked him down, and they cut off his right hand in front of his wife. Is that enough to turn you away? If that cost were presented to you, what would you do? How much are you willing to strive to enter the narrow gate? On the other side is a very wide gate, and it's very easy to enter. There's, There's no requirements. Come as you are. It's wide enough for all humanity. Keep your sins, keep your gods, keep yourself. There's no cost to enter. Admission is free. Just come one, come all. It's easy. And so which will it be? From the world's perspective, it's it's a no-brainer. I mean, like, that's why the wide gate is so crowded. And who would sign up for this narrow passageway? Then again, when you stop and consider that only the narrow gate leads to resurrection life, it it is a no-brainer for those who have eyes to see. We'll talk more about that destination later. Next, let's shift to, secondly, a choice of ways. A choice of gates, a choice of ways. There's also this contrast in these two verses between these two ways. Verse 13 tells us that the way is broad. That leads to destruction. Well, Jesus says, he's the one saying in verse 14, the way is narrow that leads to life. Now, this image of two ways runs all throughout scripture. It evokes Psalm 1, which we read this morning. There's, there's the way of the wicked, and then there's the way of the righteous. There's only two ways. It's always been this way since the beginning. We've got the seed of Satan, the seed of the woman. You've got Cain, you've got Abel. You've got Ishmael, you've got Isaac. You've got Jacob, you've got Esau. It's, there's all, only ever two ways. And only one way leads to God. Just as Jesus is the gate, so he is also the way. Again, like he says in John 14, 6, I am the way. He is the way to God. You know, like before Christians were called Christians in the early church, you know what they were called? Acts 9, 2 tells us before anyone called them Christians, they were called People of the way. That's it. People of the way. The right way, that is. There, there's two ways. There's Christ's way, the right way, but then there's a broad way. And how might we contrast these two ways here? Well, we could say the narrow way has boundaries. The broad way has no boundaries. There are no curbs on the broad way. No lines, no dividers. Just, again, come as you are, do as you please. There are few, if any, binding rules or restrictions, morals or lax. It's like the time of the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the Broadway can accommodate that. The narrow way cannot. I mean, there's very little wiggle room here. You're, you're tightly hemmed in. The term Jesus uses for narrow is stenos, from which we get the word stenography, right? Writing that is compact. This, it's a, a verb. Uh, a term for just that which is restricted, narrow, compact, crowded. That's this path. It's like a single track mountain bike path down a steep hill with cliffs on both sides. The only way you're going to safely make it down is that that straight and narrow. There is a prescribed morality or standard of righteousness that belongs to this narrow way. But it's not a burden. Those who find it discover 
blessing of this way. They're kept from all the pain and suffering and ruin that sin brings to daily life. This narrow way has little guardrails. They're meant to keep you from falling into ruin and sin. There's a lot more we can say about these two ways. Again, that they run throughout all the scriptures. You could talk about them for a long time. But for the sake of time, I think the most important difference to mention between these two ways is that the way, the broad way is of works. And the narrow way is of grace. The way of the world is all about human achievement. But the narrow way alone is about divine achievement. Saving grace. This is a big deal. This is a bigger deal than we have time to fully explore. But just think for a minute about every other world religion or belief system. Everyone. They all have some notion of afterlife. Enlightenment, nirvana, heaven, whatever it is. Everyone believes in some way man must ascend. But how do you get there? How do you get to that next place? Literally without exception, every single religion and belief system teaches the same thing. The same way. Works, works, salvation, works, righteousness. You have to earn your salvation. You do that by doing good things. It's just your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds in the end. That's the only way. It's all about human achievement. But you recognize the Bible alone rejects this, saying the only thing you achieve is condemnation. We've all sinned. We stand all guilty before a holy God. And there's nothing we can do to justify ourselves. We are guilty. We will be judged. No amount of merit can fix that. Even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to a just God. But this is where, again, the Bible alone, truly alone in all belief systems, teaches this concept of grace. Based in God's great love and mercy, he solved our problem for us. And he did that in sending his only begotten son, Christ, to come to earth, to live as a man, to die on that cross in our place. He was dying to suffer God's judgment in our place. And he finished that work. He rose from the dead. And now he offers to freely justify us, to make us right with our God forever. How? By works? No, by by the anti-work, by the admission, I can't do anything. Just have mercy on me, the sinner. That's called faith. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. For Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. Every way of the world is paved with human achievement. That is why all those roads do not lead to heaven. They all lead to hell because they bypass the one and only Savior. We, we need a Savior and they don't got it. It's only the narrow way that leads to life because it recognizes above all that there's only one name given under, under heaven by which men must be saved. It's Christ's name. It belongs to the few. This leads us to number three, a, a choice of crowds. A choice of crowds. In this passage, Jesus describes two crowds walking along these two paths, passing through these two gates. He simply describes them by their size. The many and the few. That's it. There's the many and the few. Now, the world thinks the many automatically go to heaven. 
there's not really a discussion, right? Like, hell is reserved for Hitler and serial killers, and that's, that's it. It's for the few. Pretty much everyone, by default, goes to a better place after they die. But again, this is Jesus talking, and he is saying the opposite. That it's the many who perish into destruction, and it's only the few who find life. And again, this has always been the case. It is not because the narrow gate is too small. You may enter one by one, but it can take everybody. It's because, though, humanly speaking, the vast majority of people are unwilling to deny themselves, humble themselves, submit to God, turn from their sins, and follow him. Hence, at the time of the flood, though Noah preached repentance, only eight were saved. The time of the destruction of Sodom, Abraham interceded, praying that God would relent. If only ten righteous were found in the city, not even ten were found. And the majority are not willing to give up the seen for the unseen. You might tell them of a better world to come, a better country, free from sin and suffering. But they're content to eat, drink, and be merry, not worry about tomorrow. They choose to believe there's no God, there's no judgment. That is a belief by faith. They've just misplaced their faith. Still, though, how can the majority be wrong? Majority vote wins, right? If it were a democracy, it, it is not. And the thing is that when the many try, or rather I should say, when the few try and plead with the many in love, telling them you're going the wrong way, turn, enter life. That's when it, it invites the scorn of the many. Jesus himself promised that the few would be mistreated by the many, persecuted, rejected, mocked, scorned. What did we already learn the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are you when they insult you, slander you, persecute you, say all, all sorts of false things on my account. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As a side note, this is why it's, it's hard for many people to follow Christ. I think especially young people, they're just so afraid of being rejected by the world, by their peers, by society. It's just They don't want to be that outcast. But the thing is that that's just how scripture describes the few. We are aliens and strangers on earth. We are exiles and pilgrims. This world is not our home. We're never going to fit in with the the accepted norms of this world. But, you know, most people, they're just like sheep. And like sheep, they're more comfortable in a crowd. They just want to fit in with the crowd. They believe there's safety in numbers. It's safer in the herd. They don't think for themselves. And so off they go. It's, it's often safer in a herd, but if that herd is being led to a slaughterhouse, it's not a safe place to be. And so don't follow the herd of the world. Follow Christ. You have to come to the point where you, just, you don't care what the world thinks, how they judge you. Only one verdict matters. That's what the Father says. And that's really what this choice all comes down to. We can finish with this. A choice of destinations. Number four, a choice of destinations. You know, so far, we've not painted a very attractive picture of the way of the Lord. I mean, the entrance to the kingdom, it's difficult. It's unpopular. It goes against our fleshly nature. It's like salmon swimming upstream to the point of exhaustion, just trying to get constant force, exertion, pressure, giving their lives just to make it upstream. Why would anyone do this? Who would sign up for such a difficult life? 
Well, it's, it's only when you stop and consider where these two paths are going, the two destinations where, where you find your answer. Verse 13, Jesus says the broad way leads where? To destruction, while the narrow way leads to life. It's a choice between destruction and life. The term for destruction does not refer to annihilation, but to judgment. It's used throughout the New Testament to speak of the second death. And when you die, it's not the end of life. It's the beginning of a new life. And for those who enter destruction, it's a life of suffering the wrath of God. Because you've rejected the only Savior. People are uncomfortable talking about hell. And you should be. That's the point. You don't want to go there. But why do you think it's Jesus who talks about hell the most? He has the most to say about it. Way more than heaven. He, He says so much about it. Why? Because he's trying to warn people. Before you get there, that's, that's the whole point. So let's just hear from Jesus himself. How does he describe this coming destruction? Let's even just stick to Matthew's gospel alone. Just in this gospel. How does Jesus speak of hell? Well, back in 522, he called it the fiery hell. Later, chapter 7, verse 19, he'll talk about the false teacher and liken them to a tree that is cut down and thrown into the fire. You get the same thing in the parable of the tares. Tares represent false believers. And he says they're gathered at the end of the age and burned. It is Jesus himself who declares to the lost, Matthew 25, verse 41. He says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 13 speaks of the end. Jesus, he says, will send forth his angels They will gather those who commit lawlessness. And then verse 42 says, will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But he says, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you have ears to hear? Nobody wants to talk judgment. It's very taboo to even mention hell today. But you need to know, Jesus says you need to know there is a judgment coming, a retribution, a righting of all wrongs. People are often bothered by the problem of evil. How could a good God allow so much evil in this world? But you realize that problem is solved on judgment day. He will put away evil forever, for all eternity. He's allowed it for a very short time. Only his patience allows it for a very short time. And only his patience delays his judgment, he does so, Second Peter 3, 9 says, for he's not willing, wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It is his mercy that extends and delays that judgment. But God is righteous. He is just. He will put away evil. That's bad news for us, for we are all evildoers. But you realize, as, as harsh as all this sounds, it's given as a warning because there's good news. The same God is loving, and that's why he sent his son. We deserve this judgment. But God has provided a narrow way. The fact that he opened any gate at all for us to be reconciled to him is just grace upon grace. We don't deserve any entrance. But he made a way for us to be saved from the wrath to come and to inherit eternal life. It is this narrow way. It's paved by the blood of his only begotten son. You can never doubt his love. What did he do to open this gate? He had to sacrifice his only son that 
that some might enter. And it's this narrow way, Jesus says, only the narrow way that leads to life. This is life eternal, reconciled to God, our maker, in his love forever. And so for you then, it just comes down to this choice, the most important choice of all. Life is full of choices, some big, some small, most trivial, a few truly life-changing, but none more than this. This is eternal life-changing. To follow Christ or not, will you enter the narrow way by the narrow gate with the few or not? Now, look, we all know God is sovereign in salvation. He has to regenerate us for us to be able to choose him. Jesus said, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. But we also know that while scripture teaches God's sovereignty and salvation, it also teaches man's responsibility in salvation in the same breath. As Jesus said right after that, he who believes has eternal life. Like whosoever believes. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is stressing human responsibility. So we can be content to do the same. Because while it is true that God must act to save us, it is also true that none are saved apart from this decision to follow him. And scripture is filled with many such calls to choose life. How about the call from Moses? Deuteronomy thirty nineteen. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. Here's a call from Joshua. Joshua 24, 15. He says, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's a call from Elijah. 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. There's always been two ways. And these two ways have been set before you once again this morning. This now is the test of faith, which everyone takes. Because whether you know it or not, everybody lives by faith. Everybody. Everybody chooses to believe something. No, not a person alive knows what happens after you die by sight or by experience. Those who deny God and his judgment, they are choosing to gamble their eternal lives on that choice as they place faith in themselves. And if that's still your choice after this morning, at least we can say you have been warned. In love, you have been warned. Turn and choose life. Choose Christ. Enter this narrow gate that you may live. For those of you here who have chosen to follow him, you do believe. Reaffirm your choice. Solidify your choice. Don't doubt your choice. Double down on your choice daily. There's no other way. You're on the right path. Continue to follow him. Despite all the hardships of life on the narrow way, you realize Christ is on this path. He leads the way. He's the prize at the end of the way. That's reason enough. That's the only reason we need to choose this path. It's the path of Christ. In the end, it's not enough to hear all this from Jesus, to admire him, to applaud him, to vote for him. All that matters is that you follow him with your whole life to the end. That's a disciple. You know, in John 6, it says this in verse 66. As a result of this, his teaching, it says many of his disciples withdrew 
and were not walking with him anymore. They came for the free bread, but when he started teaching the demands of discipleship, we don't want this road. This, this path is way too narrow. They stopped following him. But it says, after Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I pray you likewise have believed and have come to know that there's no other place to go. There's no other one to follow. And so let's follow Christ firm until the end. Our God in heaven, we pray you strengthen our resolve this morning to indeed follow Christ. His is the only way. He's the only truth and he's the only life. He is life eternal himself. To know him is eternal life. We thank you for your grace. We, we magnify you for your justice and judgment. That's part of your perfection, that you are holy and righteous, that you do hate sin. You will put away evil. We glorify you in that, but we, we ourselves especially glorify you for your loving kindness and your mercy that sent your son to begin with, uh, to, to provide a way, to open a small gate, to, to pave a narrow path that some may find it. That is your love, your loving kindness toward us. We know your spirit must work to open eyes. We always pray for that, that you would send forth your spirit to, uh, to awaken the dead, to raise the dead from their slumber, to, to open their eyes, to behold the Savior. The time is now. And for any here today, that you would do that, that by your grace, you would open their eyes and, and that by uh, their conviction of the truth, they would follow the Savior. And for those who have, we need uh, firmness in our decision. We need to cast out doubt and just be reaffirmed that, that Jesus really is the only way. The way of the world is safer for now, but not forever. And so convict us, encourage us, reprove us, but ultimately uh, preserve us. Preserve us to endure on this narrow way firm until the end. Thank you for your grace, your kindness to us, and may we follow. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.